Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. And I know a lot of people today are talking about an individual who made his mark and passed away at the age of 103. That's Kirk Douglas. And I'm not a big expert, and maybe some of you can fill in some of the gaps. Tell me a little bit more about him, about what kind of a person he was. I really don't know a whole lot about him, but it certainly is attention-grabbing simply because of the fact that uh, Kirk Douglas, well, I suppose any person who makes it over the 100-year mark, that is already news in its own right. And then the fact that he was... I don't know if you know this. Let's see if anybody does know. Do you know what Kirk Douglas's real name is, his birth name? So we are going to talk a little bit about that and some of the thoughts that Kirk Douglas evoked for me and perhaps for you as well on a spiritual level. That's really what it is that I would like to talk about. Some lessons associated, because as we are Jewish people, we always try and take lessons out of the things that we see and that we hear and that we experience this is Fresh Thinking. You are with Rabbi Shishla, and you're part of the conversation. So please join the conversation. Send an SMS to 34519 or a message on Telegram on 0618951019. You can tweet at Rabbi Shish. You can tweet at Chai FM. You can call the studio on 0101403020. I suppose we'll start the conversation over here today just simply by asking trivia question. Do you know what Kirk Douglas's Real name was and and the purpose of today's conversation is not to talk about the individual so much necessarily, certainly not to, to do some kind of a tribute or eulogy because I don't think that I am qualified to do so. But there are a few things about the man and about the life that he lived that really got me thinking, and that's really what I'd like to discuss and share with you. So if you have thoughts and if you have memories and if you have insights, keep it on the Jewish track. This is not just about his uh, accolades and achievements in the world of Tinseltown. What would you say? Is there something perhaps that we could learn from the man and from his life? And it is interesting because I had a particular angle that I thought we would talk about today. And this kind of segues into that angle. So it's all good. Your thoughts, starting, of course, with the name. And the name is relevant. So if you've got a th- something to share, 34519, that's our SMS line. Go for it. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So I thought uh, maybe somebody might know it all. I suppose you could Google, just like I did. I knew he had a nice, healthy-sounding Jewish name. Kirk Douglas was born Iser Danilovich. How do you like that, hey? That definitely sounds nice and Jewish. And I suppose the reason that I thought that this would, as I say, segue right into our conversation today is because today I really wanted to talk about the concept of, is it? can you run away? Can you run away if you're born into the Jewish nation. Can you run away? Can you actually extricate yourself? Can you detach? And the question is a little bit more than just religiously, because of course a person has a choice at any point in time how much they would like to participate or observe. But I suppose my question is a little different. Can you detach? Can you uncouple yourself from God? Is that even possible? And that's what I'd like to talk about. And the the reason that the Kirk Douglas angle comes into this, other than the fact, of course, that he is recently deceased and that's on everybody's minds, is because there's an individual who for most of his life had pretty much no interaction with his Judaism. And it was only much, much later in life 
that uh, Kirk Douglas took an interest. He was the survivor of a helicopter crash and two younger people had been killed. That was a very serious wake-up call for him. He did come out with injuries, but compared to what could have happened, and I suppose, and here's my conjecture, I suppose the fact that the fatalities were people who were younger than he was got him thinking about life and what it's all about. And uh, what's fascinating to me, by the way, what's fascinating, I mean, the minute a person changes their name, that already tells you that they're moving a little bit away from the heritage and the tradition, although it's very common in the acting world to change your name, not only because you want to disassociate from the family that you come with, but because you want to have a screen name, something that's catchy. Is Sidanilovich not so sure that that's the name that would roll easily off the tongue of uh, Hollywood reporters? So we get it, but Kirk Douglas sounds very, very far from anything Jewish. So you get the impression that this is a person who didn't necessarily have this deep, meaningful connection with his Judaism. I think by his own admission, he would probably say that that's how it was for a good portion of his life until there was this catalyst and there was this incredible wake-up moment. What I find absolutely fascinating, by the way, is that they say that he would fast on Yom Kippur. So that's just a whole story in its own right. How often you hear that about people who claim just to what extent they are not observant, but there's the one thing that they do, and it's very often Yom Kippur. And I always think, you know, of all things that you had to choose, (laughs) why is fasting on Yom Kippur the thing, which obviously tells you just how deeply it touches the Jewish soul, if that's the thing that people always cling to. So... It, it, it got me thinking just a little bit about there is that movement and there has always been that movement throughout the Jewish world, particularly in the modern age. Of people who want to just check out these. Listen, I don't want to have that association. So many people post-Holocaust who came along and said, I don't want my children to ever have the potential of running into the threat that we had to face. So I would prefer to bury their Judaism. And you do, uh, you know, not not f- often, often, but from time to time you hear these stories about people who had absolutely no idea that they were Jewish just simply because the parents decided to run as far as they possibly could. I recently heard a story like that actually from a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, who is uh, the rabbi, the Chabad rabbi in Istanbul. And he told the story, he actually told the story publicly towards the end of last year at the big gathering of of Chabad rabbis from around the world. And he tells the story about how there's this woman who gets in touch with him in Istanbul, and she's a Muslim woman, but it turns out that her mother passes away and they discover some, some documents, and it turns out that the mother was an Auschwitz survivor who had been so traumatized by the experience of the Holocaust that she ran as far as she possibly could to Turkey. That's not just geographical distance. It was ideological distance and disappeared into the world and became Muslim and didn't want any of her children to ever have to go through what she had experienced. And now suddenly it arrived on the desk of this girl because or this woman, I think she was a grown woman already. Because her mother had passed away and, they, and this information had come to light. And then they went and they researched and they actually were able to track the whole story. As we know, the Nazis were, were document, they documented these kind of things and they were able to find out where she came from. So it is quite common for people, well not common, I don't like that expression, but it, it has happened. Let's put it that way. It has happened that people have wanted to totally detach themselves from the whole experience. And my question is, is that actually possible? Because you look at a story of a Kirk Douglas who comes back in his later years. And totally engages with his Judaism. It becomes this advocate, actually, for Judaism and for Jewish education. And you you think, look at that. Here's somebody who had so many opportunities, really, to disappear off the Jewish radar completely. But there's something that tags you and 
brings you back. So that's really the question that I wanted to, to discuss today. Is it actually possible for somebody to detach? And um, my question is a little bit more uh, than <clears throat> than detaching from Judaism. It's more along the lines of detaching from God. Is that possible? Is that something that could actually happen? Okay, some, it's so funny how some of the first things that we get as replies to uh, often I find this people who um, who their, their their default response is always a humorous response, which is nice and it's entertaining and we do appreciate it. It's not necessarily always appropriate because not everybody's humor is everybody else's taste. And so the particular tweet that I just got, I will not read on air because I don't think everybody would appreciate it. Here's Miriam who's SMSed to say that uh, Kirk Douglas's name was Issa Danilovich Demsky. That was his birth name. Um, it's interesting that I don't know, I, I don't know enough about it, but Danilovich just very interesting for a second. The, the vich at the end or the itch at the end of a name usually means son of. So very often that was the way that people got their surnames. They were given the surname named after the father, right? Son of so-and-so. Uh, so it's interesting. It would be very interesting to know if Dembski was added later, if it was the town or something like that. Anyhow, Miriam says he was a real role model. And that's wonderful. And that, that's really nice. It would, be, it would also be lovely if you could add a little bit more why. Why, for you, would you say Kirk Douglas is a model? That would be really nice to hear. So that's what we're talking about today. A little bit of tribute, I suppose, on the one hand. It would, uh, it would go that way, I suppose. But my real question is, can you detach from God? Here's somebody who's just sent me, and I think you may have heard of this before, but it's a sign apparently in a shul, and it goes like this. When you enter this shul, it may be possible that you hear the call of God. However, it is unlikely that he will call you on your mobile. Thank you for turning off your phones. If you want to talk to God, enter, choose a quiet place and talk to him. If you want to see him, send him a text while driving. So I'm not sure if that's directly related to the concept of can you detach from God. That sounds a little bit more like a strange way to connect. My question is more, can you, can you disconnect? Can you actually sever the connection with God? And if you do feel that that is possible, how? How would, how would you go about doing it? In other words, what would it take? What would it take for a person to sever their connection with God? Let's assume that that is an option. We do have a term that is used in the Torah, which is the term called kores. And it's difficult, as is often the case, it's difficult to translate Torah words into English. English is a, it's not the right language, unfortunately, to capture subtle spiritual concepts. So when people read the word kores, they often translate it as excision or being cut off. And I think from that, people assume that there is this possibility to absolutely detach from God. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. Is that actually possible? And is it something you care about? And is it? Uh, and if it is possible, how do you actually go about it? Doing, and, and I'm not looking for suggestions, but more how? How? What? What would it take? How bad does somebody have to be? Let's put it that way. How bad would somebody have to be in order to be able to cut themselves off from God? Again, assuming that that was actually a possibility. And interesting, some people, uh, some people straight away, I think, jumping on this bandwagon. Here's Rene who says that you can't be totally detached necessarily, but you certainly can be distracted. I think many people are distracted from God, and maybe that's even our dis- default position. But maybe Rene's got a really good point that let's not confuse distraction from detachment. 
That's quite an important distinction to make very often. We look at somebody and we say, but you're not engaged. So that implies that you're distant. Not necessarily. It could just be that right now you're not engaged. There's something going on that's distracting you. So what do you think about that? What would it take? What would it take for somebody to become totally detached from God, assuming that that is even possible? 34519, if you'd like to send an SMS, you can tweet at Chai FM or tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Send a message on Telegram 0618951019. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So, talking about detach, detach from God. Is that actually a possibility? And people will invoke the term kores. Somebody's just sent through an interesting one. You know, there's a, a very, uh, shall we say, lesser known sage in the Talmud. Lesser known sage. His name was Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya. And then, at some point in his career, they dropped the rabbi. Because of choices and decisions that he had made And then at a later point They actually changed his name altogether And they just nicknamed him Acher Which means other As if he had become somebody else He was no longer the person That they had known him as And it's a, it's a very, very sophisticated story I mean, you can't just do justice to it in a few minutes But basically the story is this He was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva And two other lesser known sages Well to many people lesser known Called Ben Azai and Ben Zoma And the four of them together went on this incredible mystical journey Trying to explore some kind of realm That is beyond what the normal human mind can experience Some kind of closeness to God And out of the three of them Out of the four of them Three of them landed up as the expression goes, being burnt. Something went awry. One of them died. One of them went meshuga. And this Elisha ben Avuya, he turned against the faith. And Rabbi Akiva was the only one out of the four who nichnas b'shalom, v'yotze b'shalom. He went into the experience in a peaceful way and he came out of the experience in a peaceful way. So so here's this fellow, uh, Mordechai, who's just sent a message and he says, look, if you read what the Talmud says about this fellow Acher, he was an absolute scholar. He had this incredible insight into Judaism and the deepest teachings of Judaism. And he had a few experiences that just turned him off. That was one of the experiences, this Kabbalistic endeavor that didn't go the way that he expected it to, and various other experiences too. And eventually he turned his back on the whole thing, and he became a heretic. So he had a a student called Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Meir would consistently badger him, consistently badger him. Come on, why don't you get over your issues, come back, do as we call it teshuva, reconnect with your Judaism, and, and and the door's open. At any time, the door is open for your return. And what he says to him, this Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya, this rabbi, otherwise known as Acher, the person who had kind of become somebody else altogether, he says to Rabbi Mary, he says, look, I'll tell you the truth. And it's a fascinating story, by the way, because if you think about the story, a lot of it does not make sense, but we're not going to spend our whole conversation here talking about the story. So, he says to him, I have heard from behind the curtain. Behind the curtain is a way that the sages used to speak about being privy to what goes on in the higher spiritual realms. You know, kind of like eavesdropping on heaven. He says, I have heard from behind the screen, behind the curtain, that any person is capable of doing teshuva, of restoring their connection with God, except for Acher. In other words, he was speaking about himself in the third person. So, and that was that. After that, uh, Rabbi Meir didn't bother him anymore because he he was basically told that's it i don't there is no hope for me so what did he do that could have put him into a position that there'd be no hope for him and and was he correct by the way 
That's also part of the of the conversation. Was he correct? Sometimes people feel that they are too far gone. I've had that experience numerous times where I engage with people and say, listen, why don't you get involved or come to a shiur or just put on tefillin, even if it's just once. And very often people say, uh, it's, Rabbi, you're wasting your time with me. I'm too far gone. Now, if I had to say that about them, well, they would be absolutely horrified, obviously. But if they say that about themselves, maybe we should be even more horrified. You know, the fact that people judge other people and do so with a critical eye, uh, it's, it's not pleasant, but unfortunately, it's not uncommon. When a person looks at themselves with a critical eye and an unfairly critical eye, well, that's really tragic. That's really, that's really sad. So the person says, I'm too far gone. So the question I suppose we're asking is, can you be too far gone? What would it take for somebody to be considered too far gone? That they've, they've crossed a Rubicon, you know, that they, they can never go back. They can never regain their connection with God. What would that take? And do we believe that that is even possible? Do we believe it's possible? You know, I'll come back to that in a moment. Here's a couple of other thoughts that some people have shared. So, okay, um, not all, like I said, not all of them are for the air, for on air. Here's somebody who says, I know people who are detached from God. They are serious atheists. So does that mean that you're detached from God if you're a serious atheist? Maybe that's the way that it does, that, that person does it, right? The person says, look, yeah, I don't believe in the whole thing. And maybe that's good enough. That's the reason why a person is now no longer connected. They tell us, uh, well, not a story. There's an anecdote from Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, the famous Kotsk Rebbe, who was known to be a brilliant and very sharp Besides being pious sage And he was once asked Where is God? And he said wherever you allow him in So does that imply that if you don't allow him in Then he's not in? Is that the way that a person can shut God out of their lives? Well there's one opinion that says exactly that Here's somebody who's just made the comment That there are some quote unquote Serious atheists out there And they are people who are They are able to so to speak, sever the connection with God. And I'd like to test that theory. Totally different argument, by the way, and I'd like people to weigh in on this one. Totally different um, argument. Richard says, yes, it is possible when so many bad things happen to a person that they give up. So is that, again, is that being detached from God or is that perhaps a person feeling detached? And we have to distinguish. That was Rene's comment earlier. There are a lot of people who are distracted. Distracted does not necessarily mean that you are detached. So what I was going to say a little bit earlier is, you know, that next week on Monday, we're going to celebrate Tubishvat, which is the Rosh Hashanah of trees and there's various customs around. And one of the customs is that you're supposed to eat the species, the special species that are associated with the land of Israel, one of which is a pomegranate. And um, I was just curious. I wanted to read up on pomegranates. Uh, actually, I wanted to read up on all of the seven species, but I started with the pomegranate just to find out a little bit more. I thought it would be interesting before Tishabov. So went yesterday, did a Google search, and up came a BuzzFeed um, feed about interesting facts you might not know about pomegranates. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. So I start scrolling down, and what are the interesting facts about pomegranates? And one of them comes up and says this. A pomegranate, on average, can have a 1,000 or more seeds. And here's the part that's interesting. Unlike... The quote-unquote 
Torah myth in this regard, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. He had, had a whole list of interesting facts about pomegranate, and one of the things that they said is, unlike or basically debunking the Torah myth, what's the Torah myth? Well, people will tell you that a pomegranate has 613 seeds, and I, I know quite a lot of people who have used this as an activity for their kids. It comes around Rosh Hashanah time, and people put a pomegranate on the table, or at this time of the year, two bishvat, and people go to get a pomegranate. It's a great way to keep your children occupied, go and say, listen, go see if you can count 613 seeds in the pomegranate. So where did this thing come from? I mean, it's certainly unscientific. There's absolutely nothing that suggests that there would be an exact number of seeds in any fruit. And the pomegranate is not, it's not homogenous. I mean, not every pomegranate has 600. Where did it get it from? 613 seeds. It's one of those classic moments where people take something that they've read and they just play a little bit of broken telephone with it. And as a result, you come to a conclusion that is not exactly what the original statement said. Here's the original statement. The Talmud says, Afiru poishe Israel, even the most wanton sinner of Israel. That means somebody who deliberately goes against the principles and the beliefs of Judaism. He's, he's a rebel of note. Meleim mitzvahs karimoin. They are filled with good deeds. They are filled with mitzvahs as the pomegranate is filled with seeds. So in other words, the purpose of the Talmud, the, the, what the Talmud wanted to express in that particular reference was it wanted to tell us that every single one of us, no matter how much we try to claim that we are a lost cause and beyond help, fact of the matter is, on the inside, we're full of mitzvahs. And then people made the leap and said, oh, that implies that a pomegranate has 613 seeds because there are 613 mitzvahs. Well, that was a leap of faith. That's certainly not what the Talmud said. But it does get you thinking because that Talmudic phrase implies that you cannot detach. It's actually not possible. Even the person who rebels against God lands up inevitably having mitzvahs on the inside. What do you think? Do you think it's possible to detach is it possible if somebody's a terrible atheist or if a person has just re- reached a point of total desperation, life is so bad, is it possible for somebody to detach from God? Would love to hear your input. 34519 is our SMS line. You can send a message on Telegram. 0618951019. The brave among us are welcome to call the studio on 0101403020. Otherwise, you can simply tweet at Chai FM or directly to me at Rabbi Shish. Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper have these pocket-saving sweet deals just for you. Pick and Pay whole barbecue chickens are only 89 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher whole fresh chickens are a very low 79 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher okral vors is just 99 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and Pay petite hake fillets are 79.99 and East Coast medium soles are only 149 rand 99. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Hyper Nord is the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. I have to say we get the Pick and Pay ads on a regular basis, but I do love today how souls is spelt considering that this is 
this time of the day. It's not soul to soul. Usually at this time of the day during the week, it's soul to soul. Maybe you can get pick and pay to sponsor some East Coast souls for soul to soul, considering the way that it was spelt. <laughs> if you've just joined us, it is Fresh Thinking. You're with Rabbi Shishla, and we're together until just before 3 o'clock talking today about whether or not it is possible for somebody to detach themselves from God. Can you get to a point where you have angered him so much, or you have run so far, or you have rebelled so violently that he says, that's it, it's over, I want nothing further to do with you. Is that something that is actually possible? And uh, a, yeah, there's two really, really good comments over here, two really good comments. Going to hold them for a moment because they're that good that they deserve their own attention. Just looking, scrolling. Here's somebody who says, was it King David or his sons on Twitter? Joseph ben Judah. Was it the great King David or his son Solomon who said that there's no place where one can go to escape God? Well, the truth is absolutely there is no place or is there no place? Because the Talmud tells us that if a person is arrogant, Hashem says, I cannot be in that space because he's filled the whole space. Now, that seems to imply that it is possible for somebody to detach themselves from God. And that's why we have to be so careful how we read these things. So here's an interesting comment, okay? Somebody's made an interesting comment that says, you cannot detach from something without admitting that there is something to detach from. True, but I'm not saying that the person denies the existence of God. That's not my question. My question is if a person acknowledges that there is a God, can they detach? You know that there was a man in early biblical times called Nimrod. He was a horrible man. He proclaimed himself to be a deity, treated people with the most incredible cruelty, and his name, Nimrod, it comes from the word to rebel. So Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, says this is somebody who knew God but intended to rebel against him. Intentional rebellion. So is that not something that cuts a person off? We're not talking about a person who pretends that there is no God. And therefore, by virtue of that, they are detached. I'm talking specifically about somebody who says, I'm going to detach. I don't like the way God runs his world. I don't like the way that he interfaces with me. So I'm going to be Dafka and I'm going to go run in another direction. Reminds me a little bit of a story. I tell a story that there was once a fellow and the version of the story that I heard was he was a Holocaust survivor and he was so bitter. Understandably, and you can never judge people who've been through that kind of trauma. The truth is you can never tra- judge people even if they have not been through a trauma. But certainly if somebody's been through a trauma, you can't, you simply just can't judge them. You don't know how that rips up their inside and the soul and the core of their being. Anyhow, he came out, he, this fellow came out of the Holocaust and he was so angry at God for everything that had happened that he decided he was going to not just drop his Judaism, but he decided he was specifically going to rebel against his Judaism. And the approach, the strategy that he came up with was that he would every single year on Yom Kippur, he would go to a non-kosher restaurant and he would order whatever it was that he ordered, a cheeseburger, whatever he found to be the most offensive kind of food. 
And he would specifically eat it on Yom Kippur. And the reason he did it was, he said, after having been through the Holocaust and see what had happened, he could not believe that there was a God. And to protest the fact, to show that he did not believe that there was a God, that's why he ate this particular cheeseburger or whatever it was on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the year that every Jewish person fasts, the day that even Kirk Douglas says that he used to fast long before he became engaged with his Judaism. And I shouldn't say even because that is representative of a big swath of the Jewish world, even those who are not actually very engaged. Anyway, so somebody eventually went over to him at some point and said, listen, I, I, I have to tell you, but you're, you're living a lie. You're kidding yourself. You're absolutely fooling yourself. So what are you talking about? He says, you say that you, that there's no God and God can't exist because of the Holocaust. He says, absolutely. Without a question. What I saw, if you would see what I had seen, you would know that there's no God. He says, so tell me something. If there's no God, what difference does it make which day of the year you eat your cheeseburger? In other words, the rebellion itself is an acknowledgement that there is something or someone to rebel against. The Talmud said this, actually. The Talmud says, Af alpi shechata Yisrael hu. That even when a person sins, they are still considered 100% Jewish. It doesn't matter how bad the sin is, even if the person becomes an idolater, even if the person commits adultery, even if the person, God forbid, murdered. That person would still remain a Yisrael. That still, still remain Jewish. You don't, you don't have the rights or the opportunity to un-Jewish yourself. Much in the same way as you, you might have a terrible family breakdown and decide that you want absolutely nothing to do with your parents anymore, God forbid. Well, that's all nice in theory, but they will still live inside you in your DNA, and there's no way to get rid of that. So by the same token, the Gemara is saying, it doesn't matter how much the person sins, Yisrael, they're still 100% Jewish. And if you think about it, Actually, just think about this for one second. The very fact that you consider it a sin is testimony to the fact that you still claim your Judaism. Like this guy with his cheeseburger on Yom Kippur. The very fact that you believe that Yom Kippur is a day to protest, the very fact that you believe that a cheeseburger is a way to protest, tells us that you still are Yisrael. You're still Jewish. It's still relevant in your life because it was ir- if it were irrelevant, you wouldn't be protesting in that particular way. You would just say, I'm going to live my life. And my, my protest is I'm going to live as I wish. I don't have to wait for my annual Yom Kippur cheeseburger to, to behave as I wish. So that, I think, is quite indicative of the fact that you actually can't detach You actually can't. You can tell yourself that you have detached, much like a child who covers their eyes and says, you can't see me, because we project, right? We say, well, if I don't see you, and if I've created some kind of a barrier between myself and you, naturally I assume that you have a similar barrier between you and I. That's not quite exactly how it works, right? We can live in our own heads, and we do it a lot. And when we live in our own heads, we convince ourselves, like the person who's an absolute atheist and says, I don't believe in any of this stuff. Or like the old tongue-in-cheek saying, thank God I'm an atheist. Or as the cliche goes, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Meaning to say, you could tell yourself a story. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how it's going to end up. Nobody knows what kind of a catalyst is going to pop up in your life and totally shift the way that you think. And even if the catalyst doesn't happen, the truth be told, you probably knowingly or unknowingly, do a whole lot of things that are exactly aligned with the same Judaism or God 
that you so vociferously reject. It's quite a funny thing. But that's exactly what happens to us. This is what happens to us. You know, we take a look. We've, we're at the time of the year where we're reading the Torah portions about the exodus from Egypt. And you take a look and you see those people, it, after 200 years in Egypt, they had become so assimilated into the Egyptian society, they almost disappeared completely except for one thing. They kept a name. They kept Jewish names. <laughs> kept Jewish names. I mean, what does that help? So you keep a Jewish name. Sometimes that's the worst thing to do. You, you need to see those Jewish names in the headlines. You need to see those Jewish names behaving terribly. What, what does it help to keep a Jewish name? Your name at the end of the day is, is actually quite superficial on the one hand. And your name on the other hand talks to the core of who you actually are. This is how you identify yourself. And that's the funny thing about us. We can try and try and try and try to detach. And no matter how much you scream and protest, the more you try to detach, the more you're actually saying, I'm still connected. Something to think about. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. There's a really powerful story which I think speaks directly to this particular topic. The story relates to Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who we call Nachmanides. And he was a great sage, lived in the Middle Ages in Spain. And he was very close to the leadership and so on. But he had a student. The student's name was Avner. And as often happens, this student had his issues and he rebelled. He turned his back on his Jewish roots. And he became a very powerful man, by the way, in, in, in that region. He became a very powerful man. He was part of the government. And he used to taunt his previous teacher, the Ramban. He used to taunt him all the time. You know, Listen, what would you believe in all this nonsense and who needs it and so on and so forth. On one particular occasion, very much along the lines of the story that I just told you, one particular occasion, he summoned the Ramban to appear at his mansion on Yom Kippur. And you couldn't say no to the man. The man had clout and he could have caused a tremendous amount of trouble. So the Ramban had no choice. And he had to appear at this fellow Avner's mansion on Yom Kippur. He arrives over there and roasting on the spit is a pig. Now, this is Yom Kippur. I mean, it's one thing to eat on Yom Kippur. That already offends the sensibilities of the majority of traditional Jews, of all traditional Jews, majority of Jews. And here he's got a pig, which in itself is so offensive. And he says, he says, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it, the Ramban system. I, I don't get it. What, like, what pushed you over the edge? What made you such a radical rebel that here you are roasting and preparing to eat this pig on Yom Kippur? So Avner said to him, I'll tell you what pushed me over the edge was, was you. <laughs> Which is, of course, what every teacher wants to hear, right? So it was you. You pushed me over the edge. He says, I pushed you over the edge? Well, what did I do to push you over the edge? He says, you once gave a class. And you said that every single event and every single person in the whole of history is alluded to in one of the shortest Torah portions of the year, the portion of Hazinu. And I think that that is absolutely ridiculous, can't be. And so I thought, you know, if, that, if that's what the religion is made out of, there's no way that you can fit the whole of history into that, you know, those few lines. It's all rubbish. And that was that. So the Ramban says to him, look. I, I still stick by what I say, you know. <laughs> I, I believe it absolutely. It's 100% true. He says, really? You still believe that nonsense? Do me a favor. Tell me where I am alluded to in that Torah portion. Without blinking, the Ramban, the Ramban quotes the following verse. Amarti afem ashbisam me'enesh zichram. 
which basically means God says to himself, I will scatter them and cause their, mem- their memory to disappear from earth. So he says to him, he says to Avner, he says, do me a favor. Look at that verse and tell me what the third letter of each word is. He looks at the verse. What's the third letter of each word? The letters that stand for Reish, which is the abbreviation for the title. It's commonly used just as a single letter for the title Rabbi Avner. And suddenly this guy catches a fright. Here it is, Onion Kipper. He's got his pig roasting in the background. And the rabbi has just showed him his name in that portion. And the context is about being destroyed, scattered. Nobody should ever remember him. And he suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, what on earth have I done with my life? You know, sometimes a person needs a little bit of a catalyst. For Kirk Douglas, it's a devastating helicopter crash. For this fellow, Avner, it's a showdown with his teacher and the sudden realization that his teacher is not such a fool after all. He says, I'm so far gone. Do you understand what I've done? Do you understand how distant I've become? Really, is there, is there any hope for me at all? And the Ramban says to him, of course there is. Read the verse. The verse says that God scattered them. You, what you need to do is you need to pick yourself up, go somewhere where nobody knows you, and that will allow you the opportunity to regain your soul. And he did it. And he picked up and he was never heard from again. What's fascinating about the story is, if it's in fact the case that his name was alluded to in the Torah, isn't it fascinating that the Torah had the race at the beginning for rabbi? Here we are, we're talking about somebody who had tried his level best to detach himself from God. He had done everything in his power. He had intermarried, he had left the Jewish faith, he ate pig on Yom Kippur, he had become a government official which included all kinds of edicts against the Jewish nation. He had done everything in his power to disconnect. The fact that his teacher came and found a way to bring him back is a big deal. The fact that the illusion, the illusion that he found in the Torah to his name carries the race of rabbi tells you everything about how Judaism sees us. You can't detach. Not only can you not detach, but even if you try to detach, you don't lose the opportunity, the possibility of being rabbi. It doesn't mean he went and he qualified and became a rabbi and got a job from the pulpit. It means to say that God looks at this person and says, listen, you're messing up your life, but in my eyes you're still rabbi. That's what the Talmud says. The Talmud says, that even if the person has sinned, Yisrael who? Yisrael is the name that we use to apply to the collective noun for Jewish people when they are spiritually healthy. If we're spiritually not so healthy, we use the alternative name, Yaakov. Yaakov from the word Akev, which means a heel. That implies when the, the people have fallen to, to some kind of low level. Yisrael has in it the word Rosh, which is a head. It's got the letters of the word Rosh. Even at the time when the person sins, when they rebel, when they run, when they, when they serve pig to their rabbi on Yom Kippur, God looks at that person and says, in my eyes, you're still Yisrael. In my eyes, you're still ahead. In my eyes, you can run and run and argue and tantrum and do whatever you want, and I will still love you. Not unlike a parent-child relationship where maybe you have a child who turns around and turns, says to the parent, as unfortunately happens, says, I hate your guts. And the parent is devastated. But that doesn't mean the parent hates the child in return. On the contrary, the reason it's so painful is because the parent loves the child. One of the most important things, I think, for us to know as Jewish people is that you can't detach. You know why you can't detach? Because ultimately, you can't detach from yourself. Our relationship with God is not friendship, 
If you're a good friend, I'll be a good friend in return. It's not a relationship that is based on love. If you show me love, I'll show you love in return. It's not a, ba- a relationship that's based on fear. Look, I'm, I better not step out of line because I don't know what he's going to do to me. This God of ours is very touchy and can be quite vengeful, so I better behave. It's not a relationship of two separate beings that are looking for the glue that connects them. It's a relationship that is intrinsic to who we are. That's how it's described in the Torah. That our soul is a piece of God. And the Alter Rebbe founder of the Chabad movement says, Mamish, this is a literal comment. We are literally a piece of God. You can't detach from yourself. It's not possible. There is no way to detach from yourself. Try as you might. Run as far as you want. Hate yourself as much as you want. Beat yourself up. You can't run away from yourself. So we can't detach because we can't run away from ourselves. Our relationship with God is not made. Our relationship with God is not strengthened or weakened. Our experience of that relationship is strengthened or weakened. I think that might be what Rene was saying at the beginning. We get distracted. The Talmud puts it this way, that there are times in our lives where we become foolish. Foolish enough to believe that what we're doing is actually good for us and ignoring the fact that it disrupts our relationship with God, which effectively disrupts our relationship with our inner self. If we were thinking clearly, we'd never behave that way. We'd never follow the distraction. But the distraction is not a detachment, and that's really important for us to know. And that's why it's so common that at some point there's a catalyst that wakes us up and says, Whew, now that I think about it, I can't detach. I don't want to detach. It's impossible for me to detach because this is me. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So yesterday was the 10th of Shvat. The 10th of Shvat in the Chabad world is a very important date because in 1950, on the 10th of Shvat, the previous Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, passed away. And over the course of the next year, and then formally a year later in 51, on the 10th of Shvat, our Rebbe took the reins and developed Chabad into what it is today, which includes all these emissaries and ambassadors all over the world and Chabad houses and outreach and stopping people in the middle of the street and offering them or cajoling them into doing a mitzvah. If you, if you think of all of that, it, it's based on one premise. The whole process. You know, a lot of people always ask the question, how, what, what motivates people, why go to these crazy places on earth or or interact with people in such a strange way. Recently, I saw a story about a guy who was walking off a plane in the States and as he's walking off the pilot, you know, it's a domestic flight, the cockpit is open, you walk right past the cockpit, the pilot says, shalom, first question, have you put on tefillin today? Well, the pilot had not, the the, the co-pilot had never put on tefillin in his life and then they had this bar mitzvah in the cockpit. Like, where, where does this come from? You know, how, how do we switch from this attitude that wags a finger and says, you people are not religious as you should be, to an attitude that says, come along, whatever you do is good. Every act is, is the way it should be. It all, it, it all pivots on this one single principle. And that is, you cannot detach. You cannot detach. So if you meet a person and they look detached, realize that you've probably just got to wipe away a bit of dust, help them recognize that actually they are connected because it's the essence of their own soul. Mentioned before, the pomegranate that has seeds, 
And how the Talmud says, just as a pomegranate is filled with seeds, so even the most rebellious Jew is filled with mitzvahs. Somebody once came to the Rebbe and asked the question, how could the Talmud possibly say that a wicked, that an, that an person, that's what's called, Poishe Yisrael, that a rebellious Jew, a wanton sinner, how could the Talmud say that such a person is filled with mitzvahs? Like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. And the, Re- the Rebbe, without batting an eyelid, responded, the question is, considering that all of us is filled with seeds, filled with mitzvahs, like the pomegranate is filled with seeds, how can you ever look at another person and think that they are some kind of a rebel or some kind of a wicked person? That's how we need to learn to look firstly at others and also at ourselves. That you can never turn around and say, I- I'm a lost cause. It sounds nice. It sounds like you're trying to impress somebody as if to say, I'm in touch with the fact that I'm spiritually not where I should be. But it's nonsense. Because it's a cop-out. It's an excuse. Every one of us has this incredible resource within us. It's called a soul. The nature of that soul is that it is pristine and it is bound with God and can never break that connection. So we owe it to ourselves to find out what that actually means and to find out what it can add to our lives and to discover the message that our soul is trying to tell us on an ongoing basis because that's where our real mindfulness and real peace of mind and real happiness will come from. So please God, each of us has the opportunity not only not to detach but to find out just how firmly attached we are and how beautiful that is for our lives. I wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a spectacular week ahead.